Well, today is the second Sunday in this season of Lent. Lent is the, uh, not the stuff you pull out of your dryer, L-E-N-T, Lent is the 40-day period each year in the Christian liturgical calendar that begins on uh, Ash Wednesday, March 1st of this year, to Holy Saturday, April 15th, which is the day before Easter, which is actually 46 days if you count them up, but the liturgical calendar does not count Sundays during Lent, and it is intended to be a time of repentance and self-denial and prayer and giving. And so for those who recognize Lent, it is really a time of spiritual renewal, or it should be. And although we are not a part of a liturgical church denomination, I appreciate the aspects of Lent that require those who observe it to slow down and reflect on their lives in relation to the life of Jesus Christ. Because anytime we reflect on our lives in relationship to his, inevitably our own areas of weakness and sin and selfishness, they're revealed in a greater way. And the need for spiritual renewal becomes ever clear, which is always a good thing. It's a healthy exercise for the follower of Christ. And yet really we should be seeking spiritual renewal, not just once a year, of course, but as often as possible. And, and when we do talk about spiritual renewal in the church, we should also be talking about repentance in that same conversation because spiritual renewal always requires repentance. We find examples of that in Second Chronicles 34, in uh, Nehemiah 9, Job 42, Second Samuel 12, Matthew 26, Acts 2, uh, Acts 9, and on and on. So spiritual renewal always flows out of a repentant heart. And that's not just for the unbeliever, by the way, but for believers as well. Spiritual renewal is needed in the life of every Christian throughout our walk with Christ. In Romans 12, 2, the apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. That would be fellow believers he's referring to when he says brothers. By the mercies of God, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Every Christian should be being transformed, renewed continually, which means repentance as needed. But the truth is we don't talk about that much in church anymore because we don't want to scare people away. And so it's easy to become comfortable with our routines, even unhealthy ones, which means over time, if we're not reminded of our constant need for renewal, we can get to a place in our lives where we're actually far from God and don't even realize it. I'm not talking about losing our salvation even. I'm talking about just straying and being far from God. And so we must be renewed, which means uh, where there's sin, we must repent which in the New Testament is the ancient Greek word metanoia. It means a reversal. In other words, repentance means turning around and going the opposite direction, out with the old and in with the new, which is part and parcel with the word renewal. Uh, the two really go hand in hand. In Romans 12, 2 that we just read, the word renewal in the ancient Greek is the word anachonosis, which is literally translated as renovation. I love the picture that word creates. I renovated old houses for many years for a living. 
And when you renovate an old house, before you can put in the new, first you have to tear out the old. You have to get rid of what's already there in order to make room for the new. And likewise, in order for there to be renewal, renovation in our lives, we have to tear away the old to make room for the new. In Philippians 2, 5 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is our example to live by. And so as we do that, as we humble ourselves before him, emptying ourselves of ourselves, dying to ourselves through self-denial and humble repentance, it is then that we make room in our lives for his will to be accomplished. It's spiritual renovation, out with the old and in with the new. And yet, as I mentioned last week, The greatest obstacle to God's will being accomplished in your life is not the devil. It's not your current circumstances. It's not your unbelieving spouse. It's not even how much the last church hurt you. No, the greatest obstacle to God's will being accomplished in your life is you. The greatest obstacle to God's will being accomplished in my life is always me. We have to die to ourselves, empty ourselves of ourselves so that his will can then be accomplished in us because we are our own greatest obstacle to becoming all that he is intended for us to become. So we have to get out of our own way and let Christ renew us. Out with the old and in with the new. It's an ongoing process, by the way. It's an ongoing renovation project that we need to remind ourselves of probably much more often than we do, which is one of the purposes of our story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph with today's installment actually uh, being a bit of a departure from Joseph's journey. Our story today is a sordid tale with illicit behavior. There's plenty of deception and impure motives and selfish ambition culminating thankfully in a profoundly powerful and history-changing moment of spiritual renewal out with the old and in with the new and so I hope you you brought some popcorn today and a thick skin because this chapter in Genesis reads like a movie script but not one for the faint of heart And so we're going to pick up right where we left off last week, as we always do. And by the way, as we read through this chapter, at first glance, it seems to have very little to nothing to do with Joseph's story. And since Joseph is the protagonist in the larger narrative, why would we even bother with chapter 38, right? Well, the answer is, upon closer examination, there are, in fact, numerous reasons why this chapter is integral, essential to the overall story. And so as we go, we'll highlight those reasons and then we'll spend the bulk of our remaining time on the final and really the most powerful part of the story, which happens to be in the last section of the chapter. So let's read it together. Genesis chapter 38, 
beginning with the first five verses. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. She conceived and bore a son and called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. She again bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. So the chapter opens with, it happened at that time, which is a reference to the end of chapter 37 as Joseph is being carted off to Egypt and sold into slavery. So at the same time that was happening, the events of chapter 38 were unfolding, which is actually a very important detail because it establishes a timeline. We, we know from this chapter that Judah married a Canaanite woman and began a family having three sons about the same time Joseph was sold into slavery and serving in Potiphar's house in Egypt. And since we know from chapter 46 that Judah's surviving sons made the trip to Egypt with the rest of the family some 22 years later, that means the events of chapter 38 not only overlap the events of many of the following chapters, but also that chapter 38 alone would have to span over at least 20 years. And so there's a considerable value in chapter 38 simply in the fact that it helps us create a timeline for the overall story. Okay, let's keep reading verses 6 through 11. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah finds a wife for his firstborn son, as was the custom. But verse 7 says that his son Ur was wicked. In fact, if you, if you read the name Ur in the Hebrew, it is literally the same word as wicked in the Hebrew, but spelled backwards. The name Ur is the word wicked spelled backwards. Why you would even name your kid that to begin with is beyond me. But apparently he lived up to his name. We don't know specifically what he did, but it was obviously bad enough for God to put him to death. And actually we can make an educated guess that his offense was probably sexual in nature and probably involving Tamar, but by no fault of her own. Because first of all, if you read it in the Hebrew, his death is described in an almost identical sentence structure as that of Onan's death. And furthermore, if you read through Leviticus chapter 20, death is prescribed for a variety of sexual offenses. So we don't know for certain, but it's likely that Ur died for sexual misconduct against his wife, Tamar. And so there were these laws in ancient societies, including Hebrew society, called Leveret Marriage Laws. 
And under the Leverett laws, if a woman's husband died before she could bear children by him, then it was the duty, the, the requirement of the dead man's brother to bear children by her in order to continue the dead brother's line, which is stipulated in the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25, uh, 5 through 10. And so according to the Leverett laws, Judah commands his second son, Onan, to father children by Tamar in order to preserve his brother's name. But Onan, which probably should be the word stupid spelled backwards, but it's not, right? After witnessing the death of his own brother for probably the same or similar reasons, Onan violates the same Mosaic laws because he fears that any son born to Tamar would receive privileges over any sons of his own, which ultimately could reduce his own share of Judah's inheritance. So thinking he was being selfishly clever when all that he was really doing was pitting himself against God, which is always a losing proposition. And in the end, he too is put to death, just like his brother. Like, what did you think was going to happen, right? So Judah, recognizing a pattern with his sons dropping dead after being assigned to Tamar, decides to change tactics. And instead of sending in the third string, he sends Tamar back home to her father so that Sheila, his third son, could have a bit more time to mature, or it was under the guise of that when in reality he simply feared for Sheila's life. Yet it's worth noting here that not one word is mentioned in the story in regard to Judah mourning the loss of his first two sons, which is in stark contrast to his father Jacob after losing his son Joseph back in chapter 37 as far as he was concerned. So Judah's life at this point is a complete dumpster fire. It's a big mess. He sells his little brother into slavery and then separates from his family and goes down to his Canaanite friend from the Canaanite city of Adullam. He marries a Canaanite woman, which was not only frowned upon in Israel to say the least, but the way it reads in the Hebrew that Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. That language in the Hebrew suggests an illicit taking of this woman by Judah based on lust, which is reinforced by the fact that her name is not mentioned in the story. And then after having three sons by her, he finds a Canaanite wife for his oldest son who dies because of his sin, and then he loses his second-born son for the same reason. So Judah has made a catastrophic mess of his life and that of his family as well. There's a desperate need for spiritual renewal in Judah's life, out with the old and in with the new. But instead of addressing the real issue in his life, which is decidedly spiritual, instead, in order to try and mitigate the damage that he's done to himself and his family, Judah tells Tamar to go back home to her father, which she does, to remain a widow for a season. In other words, the solution to Judah's problems in his mind lies in the current state of his circumstances rather than in the current state of his spirit. So his answer in attempting to fix his problems is to try and change his circumstances instead of seeking spiritual change, spiritual renewal. So Judah sends his daughter-in-law away to try and stem the tidal wave of destruction that he's brought upon himself when he should be on his knees in repentance, seeking spiritual renewal. And I'll just tell you guys, we need to hear this today. I need to hear this today. 
okay? Because often when life isn't going how we want it to, and everything seems to be a big mess, we work overtime often to try and change our circumstances, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, by the way. But if there are spiritual issues in our lives that need to be addressed, and we are not addressing them, all that you'll end up doing is wearing yourself out, chasing a solution that can never be found in a new set of circumstances. Until we are renewed spiritually, which begins with humble repentance, our circumstances may change, but I'm telling you our misery will remain. It will remain until we address the real problem. Okay? If your life is not where you want it to be today, if there is strife, if there is brokenness in your relationships, if you rarely feel content, if it seems like you're constantly having to push back against the circumstances in your life, if you're lacking a, a sense of peace, if it seems like you're continually having to chase new solutions for one problem after another, the answer you're seeking probably doesn't lie in a new set of circumstances. It may be time to seek the only real answer that can ever satisfy. And I'm just wondering, have you tried isolating yourself from every distraction in your life? And once alone with just you and the Spirit of Christ, seeking Him first, seeking spiritual renewal before seeking a new set of circumstances, have you tried praying like David prayed in Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That is a powerful prayer. Have you tried it? Have you tried repentance? Because once we submit our hearts to Christ, in humble repentance, he renews us spiritually in a moment. He floods our lives with forgiveness, and what follows is joy and gladness and rejoicing, freedom. Notice David says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice, you see. <laughs> even the broken parts of our lives that he allows in our lives to bring us into alignment with his spirit of Christ. But it means submitting our lives to him, all of our lives, the healthy parts and the broken parts to him. 
So stop chasing new circumstances and instead seek Christ. Let him renew your spirit through humble repentance. It's out with the old and in with the new. Unfortunately for Judah, he hasn't figured that out yet. And so his misery continues. Let's keep reading now, verses 12 through 19. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her on the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that, I may, uh, that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. But she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, Well, what pledge would, would I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Judah's misery continues. His family members are dying all around him, including his wife. And so instead of seeking spiritual renewal, he seeks the comfort of a prostitute. Because that will fix all your problems. Except the fact that she's not a prostitute. It's his daughter-in-law, but he doesn't realize that because she's changed her clothes and covered her face and is sitting on the roadside, which was customary for prostitutes at that time. So Tamar has long since realized that Judah has no intention of honoring the leverage marriage laws by giving her his remaining son, Sheila, as he promised to do. So Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands and confront Judah on his way to the annual shearing of the sheep, which was always a big to-do. Except that when Judah sees her, he mistakes her for a prostitute, and Tamar instantly not only sees a potential opportunity to finally have children, but is also apparently not bothered by the fact that those children would come by way of her own father-in-law. What a lovely family this is. Now, in defense of Tamar, having children in ancient cultures for a woman was often the only means for survival as the family name would be preserved and those sons would also become economic providers and protectors for their mother as well. Uh, remember, Tamar was not a Hebrew and it's true that there were other uh, neighboring cultures at that same time who had their own versions of the Leverett marriage laws, the Assyrians. Uh, the Hittites, the Nutsi, the, the Ugarit, um, they all had their own Leverett marriage laws. And so, for instance, the Middle Assyrian marriage laws and the Hittite marriage laws of the time both provided for a father-in-law marriage when a brother-in-law was unavailable. And so there's reasonable speculation that Tamar may have justified her actions, at least in her own mind, based on some of these other ancient Near Eastern practices doesn't make it right, but it may help to explain her behavior since Sheila, according to Hebrew laws, was still the next in line to father children with Tamar, but Judah obviously had no intention of fulfilling his promise to her. Effectively, he was condemning her to a life of barrenness. 
And so not only is Tamar willing to seize what she sees as a golden opportunity to maybe have children, but she's no dummy. She knows what kind of man Judah is. And so she takes steps to ensure that she will not be condemned to death once her ruse is revealed. And so she convinces him to give her his signet and cord and staff, which were all unique identifiers to their owners at that time. And after their time together, she disappears back to her family with what today would be the equivalent of his driver's license and social security card. Can you see how the messes we create in our lives only get worse when we try to fix them by seeking new circumstances rather than seeking Christ? If trying to manage life on our own hasn't worked out so far, why do we think it will, it will get better if we keep doing the same things that we've been doing? Right? Instead of looking at his life and saying, okay, I've really messed this up, so I'm going to stop. And in humility, I'm going to seek spiritual renewal. I'm going to reset my life with God instead of trying to keep managing all of this on my own because that's not working out. I'm going to repent for the mess that I've made and let God renew my spirit out with the old and in with the new. But that's not what he does. No, instead of doing that, Judah thinks he can provide for his own peace and joy and satisfaction in his own way. And in the process, he gets his own daughter-in-law pregnant and doesn't even know it. And so she goes back home. She waits quietly until she can no longer conceal the children that she's carrying by her father-in-law. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. Very reminiscent of what Judah and his brothers did with Joseph's coat, their father Jacob. The signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I. Since I did not give her my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. The midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. That's what Perez means in the Hebrew. And afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. So Tamar's secret is out once she can no longer hide the pregnancy. And since she's technically still betrothed to Shelah, the third-born son, having sexual relations with anyone else under the Mosaic law was punishable by death. And so Judah orders her to be burned to death, which was not only extreme, but was actually reserved under the law for a, 
uh, priest's daughters in Leviticus 21 because for a priest's daughter to commit adultery was seen as particularly heinous. And so once again, Judah makes his own judgment call, which turns out once again to be a bad judgment call. And so Tamar pulls out the trump card. She sends Judah's personal belongings back to him with the message that the owner of the items is also the father of her children. And so the story also serves to point out the effect that unrepentant sin can have in an ongoing way in our lives and in the lives of those closest to us. Jacob deceived his father Isaac. He in turn was deceived by his son Judah. And now Judah is deceived by his daughter-in-law Tamar. And by the way, in all three instances, goats and items of dress were used in the deception. Each one's sins have been returned back on them. So how do we break the cycle? How do we stop doing the same things and getting the same results? How do we once and for all change course and experience real renewal in our lives? Well, Judah shows us how. Finally, after all of the bad decisions, after all of the sin, after all of the mess that he's created, finally Judah does what he should have done long ago. In humility, he repents. And the effect is immediate and it is profound. Now, if all of the information that we had about Judah was this story, we'd say, well, he's finally admitted to doing something wrong, but that would be about it. And yet the actual consequence of his repentance here is far more profound and far more reaching than what we read in just this story. For not only is his child Perez in the line of Christ, okay? Perez grows up to head the Judaite clan from which Boaz came, who was the ancestor of David, who was in turn the forefather of the Christ, which demonstrates the fact that God used Judah and Tamar in profound ways even after all of this sin. But beyond that, Each time we see Judah after this throughout the rest of the story, he is a completely different person. He plays a very key role at different points in the story with a completely different character shining through as he has now been radically changed through spiritual renewal, which all began with a very simple act of repentance. You see, this was the turning point. For Judah, And we know it was true repentance because not only did he admit his failure, but verse 26 says he did not know her again. In other words, Judah's actions were reversed. Remember, that's the biblical definition of repentance. He stopped what he was doing. He went the other direction. Out with the old and in with the new. And it changed his life. Changed the lives of his family forever. The, the tribe of Judah. Right? And how was that possible after all of the mess that he created? It was possible because Judah had finally experienced the spiritual renewal that he needed all along. You know, human culture constantly changes. But human nature never changes. The circumstances of our struggles may be different throughout the ages, But the spiritual root of those struggles is the same. We deal with the the exact same heart issues as other people have throughout all of human history, which is why God's word is timeless. 
because it addresses our humanness in light of his holiness as he offers us what only he can. Spiritual renewal. Out with the old. In with the new. But we have to see it for what it is. We have to recognize what the answer is. It's not changing our circumstances or getting our spouse to act differently or getting people to see things our way. No, the key to being able to have joy and gladness where we can rejoice even in the broken parts of our lives. The key is spiritual renewal. And the greatest obstacle to that is always ourselves. Because we have to die to ourselves. We have to empty ourselves of ourselves so that spiritual renewal can occur. We have to get out of our own way and let Jesus Christ renew us. Out with the old and in with the new, which always begins with the simple act of repentance. Coming before Jesus Christ in humility, not focusing on others and what they've done to us, but acknowledging our own humanness, our own weaknesses, our own frailty and failures in light of his perfect holiness and realizing that change in our lives begins with us dying to ourselves. That's when he does a supernatural work in our hearts and lives. That's when we are renewed spiritually. And so my question is, what are we waiting for? We can keep doing what we've been doing and getting the same results, or we can humble ourselves before him in real repentance and allow him to renew us, to really change us. Out with the old and in with the new. Let's pray.